Welcome to the Shelton Church of the Nazarene podcast. On this podcast, you'll hear sermons that have been preached on our Sunday morning gatherings. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. All right. Oh, it's on and loud. Hey, good morning. All right, folks. It is the end as we know it, and I feel fine. How many of you have heard that song before? You've heard that song before? Yeah, I'm sure. More of you have heard it than are admitting it, and that's okay. So, this is the last. This is the end of the end, and my brain is tired. Um, If you haven't heard yet, this isn't some sort of, like, let me brag about whatever, but it's because as a pastor, I've wanted to do my due diligence, but I've read like four or five books in the last month or two just on this book, and my brain is like filled to capacity on stuff about the book of Revelation. Oh, my lanta. Not to mention, maybe I've wasted a little bit of time watching fun predictions on YouTube. Maybe more than I should have. Maybe I shouldn't admit that. There is a whole host, a plethora of hot takes of thoughts on this book. There's a whole host of of what? I could, <laughs> we need to do that. You're right. Let's say it. Ready? <laughs> Let's all say it together. Ready? I could be wrong. That has been our theme through this book because of this story I was about to share. There have been never-ending predictions, uh, prophecies, dates that are picked. There have been never-ending discussions on this book, and they actually have real-life implications. It's one thing to read the book of Revelation and go, ah, it could happen but it could be this. I know my buddy over here thinks that. I know this person over here thinks that. It's a whole other thing to have someone tell you this is what's going to happen, and then you change your life and orient it around that one prediction. And that's a thing that actually happens more often than not. There's probably in any given year some church somewhere that's saying Jesus will come back at this place right here. There's Apparently they're nicer than I thought. Bevan Morris told me I probably would have been fine breaking down outside of their compound. But every time I drive between Arizona and San Diego, there would be this compound. It had like a pyramid and a spiral staircase that went to nothing. I always thought it was really weird. And then I found out later that that's where the Jesus UFO will land. And there was a date that went with that. I'm like, that's interesting. So note to self, don't break down outside of their compound. But apparently, Bevan Morris told me their pastor took them on a guided tour of that place or something like that. I'm like, okay, so they weren't going to like sacrifice me to some sort of pagan god thing. Okay, that's curious. But there are other very real, real world implications that this book can bring about. Um, One of the famous examples some of you might know is there's a radio station called Family Christian Radio, I believe, a man named Harold Camping. I was just starting to be a youth pastor at the time. And he would spout off all these things because he would read this book as a code book and he would decipher the mathematical equations that he found within it. And then it turned into a, hey, March 28th, 2012, whatever it was. I can't remember the exact date. All I know is I was a youth pastor and people would ask me all sorts of things. And as a youth pastor, I wasn't brave enough to talk about Revelation yet, but I'm like, I would probably not trust that guy. Sadly enough, you would see it on the news. Maybe some of you remember. Um, maybe we saw more of the news because I think he might have actually been based in California, and that's where we were. 
but people ended up buying into the hype, so much so that people pulled kids out of school, they uh, sold houses, they sold all their worldly possessions, they bought motorhomes and, and put on their motorhomes, Jesus is coming back on this day, be ready, and they went about trying to be who they thought they were supposed to be because they trusted this man who they saw as a spiritual leader. Needless to say, their lives were upended when that day came and went, and there wasn't anything remarkable about it. And that can sometimes be disheartening slightly for a person when all of their thoughts, ambitions, hopes, their, their revelations were wrong. The things that they thought were happening in this book didn't come true, and there have been countless, countless cases of that happening. The other one that I can most recently recall, because I was alive for it, y'all like to give me grief for being extra young, um, but the year 2000, I'm sure more than a couple of you heard some sort of prophecy about, oh, well, there's two millennias, one millennia, then another millennia, and we talked about the millennial reign a little bit last week but it turned into a lot of concerned people going to Costco. And then going to Costco with the little flat truck thing, and you piled it on with beans and rice and dried goods and just case after case of water. If you didn't do that, you didn't really live, folks, because that was my family. And I was like, fill up every bathtub. We have the 100-gallon jug in the back. We're going to have all this water. We have the whole pantry full of our doomsday pantry. And like, oh, my lanta. And they would just kind of like err on the side of not sounding too off by saying, oh, well, it's just because computers and banks, uh, they only do two-digit dates, so if it goes to zero, zero, it might reset everything, and that's going to be bad. Like, I remember, in the year 2000, well, actually, it was the year 1999, December 31st, I was like, ha, that'd be funny if the power went out, but there were people around the world that were very, very concerned. Now, at that time, how old were we? Like, 13 or 14? I mean, I was really young, but I just thought, ha, Power goes out, we get to camp out. That's cool. That's cool. Whatever. That's going to be fun. So I wasn't quite old enough to appreciate that in this book. There's a lot that people were, were speaking to because of what they read in it. And generally speaking, this book has a lot to say um, in just general terms and just overviews and just the actual theme message. If you wrote a book report, you would probably have a couple different book reports. If you remember... We did the Pictures of Heaven a month or two ago, and that was really interesting because we had 12, 12 kids who heard the same biblical passage and drew 12 different pictures of heaven. And so that's just something that's important for us to remember. Sometimes a group of people can read the same book, the same chapter, the same verse, and come away with slightly different takes on what they're supposed to get from it. But overall, for most of Christendom for most of the church's existence, there are a couple overarching theme messages that we need to take from this book. One, it's a letter written to the church. Two, it's a letter written to real life churches, but to us today, about choosing to be faithful instead of compromising. This book continues throughout it after those first couple chapters, which are the specific address two specific churches in Asia Minor, and then goes in to say, hey, there's a scroll, it's going to be revealed. That's what revelation means, is to reveal things. Apocalyptic language is language that is revealing things that can come about, that will come about, especially on the trajectory of the human race's current direction of doing bad things all the time. 
But there's also interesting things in here that are prophetic in nature as well, which basically are saying, hey, God wants you to know this so that you don't end up like this. But if you continue doing this, you will end up over here, and that's going to be bad for you. And while we can get all sorts of divided and debating over the nuances of various chapters and what this number 144,000 means or what this number 666 means or who this beast is and who that beast is and why is this woman called this and why does she have this many crowns or why does this thing have this many horns or why are there this many seals and bowls and trumpets and signs? I think the overarching message of this book is one that we need to walk away with thinking of first and foremost. That once again, Jesus is reminding his people that he wants to enter into our story, that he wants to be a part of the mess of our lives to bring us up out of it, but we have to be willing to let that happen. We have to ask for it. We have to lean into it. We have to say, yes, please, but it might cost something, as these churches would tell us. We can see their histories. That whole overarching message theme is really a question for us to ponder today of how now shall we live? See, the, the end of this chapter, uh, the end of this book, there's a couple chapters where it talks about Satan being confined. And we talked last week about how Jesus just ultimately deals with evil, which is pretty cool. But then there's some thousand-year reigns and then another thousand-year reign. And there's this talk of pre and post and pan and a millennial reigns. And those are just big fancy words for people who have different opinions on how these things are going to work out. And as a result, it leads them to believe different things about the times and the signs that may or may not be encapsulated within them. See, some think that if this is how it lays out, then ultimately the world is getting worse and worse and worse. And there's nothing you can do about it. So sometimes they just say, wash your hands of it. There's some that think, no, we have to make the world better and better and better. And then eventually that's when Jesus does his thing. And there's some that are like, we're supposed to do what we're supposed to do. Jesus called us to do this, and that's what we're supposed to do, regardless of those perspectives. And that's technically where our denomination might fit most closely within. Because ultimately, what happens in this book is, if you have a very specific perspective on what you think is happening, you might fool yourself into thinking that you can bring about Jesus' second coming if you do this, that, or the other. Or you might be able to bring about some sort of revelation or some sort of sign because you did this, that, or the other. But I think that is a dangerous perspective to have because it makes us think that we have more power and control over this earth than we really do. See, what's maybe a little bit scary about the book of Revelation is how much there is going on in maybe a spiritual realm and how much that spiritual realm still affects this earthly realm that we live in and how the best way to, if you want to call it, combat the evils of this world is simple by not giving in to them, but instead following the example that Jesus set for us regardless of what tomorrow may or may not bring. There's a very interesting story where the church didn't do that. Where the church focused too much on, well, this is just how I feel like this is going to play out, so I'm going to do this, that, or the other. Where the church, instead of giving its power away like Jesus did, decided to try to align with the power of the day 
and try to force things to happen because someone fooled a whole bunch of them into thinking it was right. The church that I'm specifically referred to, referring to existed within a human kingdom, which you could probably say right off the bat is problematic because what Jesus says, what is conveyed throughout the book of Revelation is so often us as Christ followers will align ourselves too closely with human kingdoms instead of heavenly kingdoms. And that's where the compromise can come. And that is exactly what happened. It is in a little country called Rwanda. Now, we don't often talk about anything aside from the terrible, terrible genocide that happened in this country. We often don't even think much more than just the movie Hotel Rwanda that some of us may or may not have watched. And if you've watched it, it's fairly accurate. Obviously, it was made by Hollywood, so they took some license to make things more dramatic here or there, or maybe err on this side or that side of some sort of political whatever. But there is a man that wrote a book about it, and I didn't quite get why he titled this book what he did, but it was called Mirror to the Church. And it was about the genocide in Rwanda and how the church actually had a very big part to play in what happened because they compromised their witness. And it wasn't just Africans that did it. It was with lots of influence from Western cultures that created a very problematic situation where allegiance to Jesus was second to labels and allegiance to certain caste systems. But here's a quote that I want you to hear from this book, and I want to share a little about it. The guy that wrote it is called Emmanuel Cantangole. He says, If the church in the 21st century is to reposition itself into a prophetic posture, which is simply one that speaks God's truth so that people may actually have ears to hear, minds to listen and receive to be transformed by it, we will have to learn what it means to reclaim our resident alien status. It is not enough for us to live in this world as individuals with our spiritual tourist visas while we enjoy the scenery waiting to be raptured home at any minute. We have to live with our feet on the ground, devoted to our calling to serve God in this place. See, what this guy is getting at is so often the church can just be like, nah, that's a little too icky and I don't want to get involved in it. Maybe Jesus will come back tomorrow and deal with it so I don't have to. And that might be part of the slightest bit of what happened in Rwanda. If you don't know about Rwanda, basically the year the genocide happened, 1994, the genocide happened Easter week, which is a problem right there, especially since... This country was considered the most Christian country, not only in Africa, but perhaps the world. 80% of people would have professed faith in Jesus. The church had a huge hold on this country. And what's even more curious is that Western cultures, Western churches who weren't maybe evangelizing as well as they thought Rwanda was, were studying it. Wondering, wow, they built a lot of churches. They have a lot of people on Sunday mornings. What's that about? But then 1994 happened. And they don't even know. They don't even know how many people died. Probably a million or more. And what's terrible is that it was just due to a label. Hutu versus Tutsi. This label that was maybe perpetuated by the history of the church's influence on this country, sadly, based on this man's observations in this book. 
And that maybe could be debated, but what can't be debated and what is especially frustrating for me to read about is even though they're in a Christian nation, what, it seems, to, what seems to happen as a result is many Christians compromise because they say, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is a Christian nation, so I'm going to roll with it. So much so that there are story after story of issues where priests and pastors would, would actually say, hey, Mr. Hutu, Mr. Uh, group of people coming in with all of your, they were called the inner homway, that were going around uh, genociding the Tutsis. Tutsis. Let's say, could you please not use grenades? Could you please not use machine guns when you go into to my church to kill Tutsis? Would you just use machetes? Because I don't want anything to happen to the building. And then, in the same period of time, you would hear stories of children or young adults who the inner Ahamwe would come in and say, okay, divide amongst yourselves. Hutus over here. Tutsis over here. And the students said, no, thank you. And so they would kill all of them. See, somewhere along the line, the church, in the name of becoming a Christian nation, lost its witness, stopped choosing faithfulness, and instead, even though perhaps it didn't realize it, opted for compromise. There's one quote where a, a bishop would come in, and there's a lot of Catholic and Episcopal and high liturgy churches at this time, but they weren't the only ones, but this is the guy that wrote this book, he was a Catholic priest, so he talks about all the, the circles that uh, he, he's familiar with. And there was someone that would be like a Jerry Kester is to me, someone that oversees the churches coming in and saying, what in the world is going on here? You used to be the people that we studied about how to evangelize the best, about how to be the best version of the church. What did we lose? So the question was asked, and this question gets to the heart of this compromise versus faithfulness that I think Revelation is trying to call us to reconcile in our own minds and hearts and lives. He asked the question, does the blood of tribalism run deeper than the waters of baptism. And the priests in the room simply said, yes, tribalism won. We were too compromised. We let human labels, we let human divisions, we let human powers and governments, we let, we let these Babylons determine our allegiance instead of a slain lamb. And as a result, Horrific, horrific things took place. Does being a Christian, being a part of a church with Christ as, as its head, have something to say about how we live our lives? Because I think maybe some of these people would have maybe said yes. But obviously their allegiances were still somewhere else. And there's a lot to this story that that we shouldn't write off. I don't have enough time to go into the, the details because this, is the, this isn't the only country that was called a Christian nation that had a horrific, horrific history. Recent, recent in the last hundred years, horrific history of countries with, with supposedly Christian leaders and Christian governments that are doing terrible, terrible things. But this story is a story that makes sense with this book title, Mirror to the Church, because the church had something to do with either making it worse or standing against it. 
The worst story that I read in this book, and sorry, this is just, this is real life. So sorry to be such a downer, but priests were, com- were, were working together with businessmen to rent bulldozers because people barred themselves into churches and they decided to just bulldoze them. These places that people thought were sanctuaries, safety, of peace, of closeness with God were being killed within them. That is an obviously extreme example of people choosing compromise over faithfulness, but something happened that was very small and slight, and it set that country on fire. Sometimes I wonder about our own. We have our own tribalism. We have our own human-made systems. We have our own human governments that claim our allegiance, that call for us to unquestioningly support them. And I wonder where the church is when these discussions are taking place and where the church will be if it gets worse, particularly in this country. And this begs all these questions of the pre, of the post, of the millennials, of things getting better or worse, but I would simply say, does it matter? Because I think it's more important for us to focus on giving God our whole selves being faithful in every facet of our being, of trusting and believing He is who He said He is, and so is His Son. And that His Son has called us to a new way that would have prevented in the first place anything like that genocide from ever happening. Which, in the end, if we read the story, this this faithfulness of God's people is what helps bring about the redemptive work of all creation. See, if you recall, in the last couple chapters we've been reading, there has been this talk of of those clothed in white. Throughout the story, we've seen martyrs. We've seen those who have chosen faithfulness, who have literally laid down themselves because they would not compromise their faith or following Jesus. And that is who God uses to combat the evil of this world, physical or spiritual. And that in the end, God wins. And that these individuals who choose faithfulness get to be a part of that redemptive story where creation and the evil that held it in its grasp is redeemed. Where no longer is this world affected by the brokenness, the evil, the sinfulness, but instead God returns all of creation to its original state. See, in chapter 22, at the end of this book, I'm going to be in verse 6, A.A. Ron. Jesus says, Then he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And this is Jesus talking to John about this entire book. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. And this is immediately after John sees heaven touching earth, the new Jerusalem. Look, I am coming soon. Favored is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy contained in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a servant just like you and your brothers and sisters, the prophets and those who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy contained in this scroll because the time is near. Let those who do wrong keep doing what is wrong. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let those who are righteous keep doing what is right. Let those who are holy still be holy. 
Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay all as their actions deserve. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Favored are those who wash their robes so that they may be the right, so that they may have the right of access to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the drug users, spellcasters, those who commit sexual immorality, the murderers, the idolaters, and all who love and practice deception. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to bear witness to all of you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes receive life-giving water as a gift. Now I bear witness to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy contained in this scroll. If anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues that are written in this scroll. If anyone takes away from the words of the scroll of prophecy, God will take away that person's share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this scroll. The one who bears witness to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. This closing chapter, these closing remarks, this come and let the one who is thirsty come, the one who wishes to receive come, the one who hears come, is a callback to the nature of God that we see throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament. So there's something about God that is remarkable. If we go all the way back to Genesis, we see that there's a God who wants to have a creation that is in relationship with him. That in the first couple of chapters, that's exactly what happens. Adam and Eve get to hang out with God in the garden. But at some point, and I'm not going to be petty and get in trouble with my wife, something happens and sin is introduced. And I'm not going to say who's at fault, which gender brought about the fall, because that's a temptation I need to avoid. Right, dear? I love you very much. I didn't say it. But at some point, because God gave us the ability to choose, sin was introduced into this world. And from that point on, and we could debate about how long ago that was, if you guys want, it's super fun, right? Dinosaurs and everything. From that point on, the world has been broken. No matter what God would do to call his people out of it, to say, come, it would continue to be broken. Even when he sent Moses, even when he brought them out of Egypt, even though he made a covenant with Abraham and then made a covenant on tablets with Moses and his people to say, I will be your God, you will be my people. Come, be who I have called you to be. Be set apart. Be a witness to the nations. They would choose not to. Ultimately, eventually, Jesus would show up. And we would use this word incarnational, which is a remarkable word because it means God with us. Jesus would enter into our mess as a perfect sacrifice to fulfill the covenantal agreement between God and Israel, but also to welcome us into the fold. In the beginning, God was with us and the earth was perfect. In the middle, God sent his son when the world seemed the most broken. And he invited us once again to come. And he made it easier than ever to do. So easy and basic to simply say, yeah, Jesus, that's, that's who I need to be because that's who I was created to be. I was broken without you, but you can make me whole. Just like this world is broken without you, but one day you will make it whole. And in the end, church, 
He still says come because he still wants to be with us. And in the end, because there are enough that are faithful, prophesied of the truth of these tests, there's enough that decide not to just go to church, but decide to be the church. They are part of the redemptive work that brings about the end of time, that heals a broken and wounded world, that redeems and reconciles all of creation back to its creator. A creator who simply wants to be in a relationship with us. Now, if you can't get that in the book of Revelation, uh, let's have coffee. I don't know. Because there's a lot in this book that concerns me, especially when it's used and weaponized. Far too often, instead, I hear people say, well, I read in the book of Revelation, so those people are definitely going to hell. Or, well, I read in Revelation, so that kingdom is definitely doing this side or the other and is evil. And this one's the good. And that, first off, it's not, our, it's not our position to judge. Jesus says that pretty clearly. <laughs> Worry about your own faith. Worry about where you're going to end up. Don't point out other people's flaws and say, oh yeah, you're probably going to hell. Because Jesus said, actually, God's the judge, and if you're going to judge someone else, he's going to come back to bite you, and it's not going to be great. But this book, this book of Revelation, this end, this thought on what is going to happen at the end of time will set the trajectory of a person's life in a very real way. Sometimes it turns into a selling my house to drive around in an RV around the planet and becoming bankrupt. Sometimes it could turn into a million-person genocide. Sometimes it could be a, we don't need a youth program because Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Sometimes it just simply turns into, well, I go to this church, and you can go to that church, and we don't have to see each other unless we're at Denny's. <laughs> I'm just not, it's sort of a joke, but it's real. You know it's real. You've experienced it. You've seen it. You've witnessed it. You've had conversations with people where it's like, well, obviously this is what's going on in the book of Revelation. I can't, I've, I've had someone say those exact words to me with that same voice, so you don't, you don't know who they are, so you can't figure it out. Don't worry. But this book can do a lot to divide, and I think if it is dividing the church, then maybe the church is getting it wrong. But if it brings the church together to be who Jesus called it to be, then maybe we're getting the right thing out of it. Because there's a lot that we could debate and discuss, but if we can get over ourselves and say, well, I think this about chapter whatever. That's cool. I think this. Okay. Well, Jesus said we should still do this anyways. Okay. Then maybe, maybe there's hope. But if it turns into a, uh, I can't buy that about that chapter and verse, so I'm going to go to a different church. Then I'm worried, if I'm honest. The church is losing its witness. It's losing its prophetic voice in this place. Prophetic voices aren't always even voices that need to be spoken, but just simply lived as an example for the world to see. See, in this book, Mirror to the Church, it's not all doom and gloom. There is example after example of people doing exactly what Jesus called them to do. And these men with guns and machetes and grenades don't know how to deal with it, and they back down. And they say, okay, that, I, don't, I don't know what to do with that. And so somehow 
the prophetic voice of a resident alien, literally a person who doesn't seem to fit the human molds of you're this or you're that and is somewhere in the middle, which is kind of what a resident alien is supposed to be. Human systems don't know what to make of that. They say, oh, that's, that's weird. But as a result, people avoided a very horrific end to their lives because of a select few who were faithful. And as a result, some of those in Rahamwe who did terrible things because that's what they knew to do, questioned their actions. And they said, I don't know if this is actually right. I don't know if I should keep doing this. That is what is so significant about the gospel of Jesus Christ, is when people meet it face to face, they can't help but pause and wonder, especially when they see someone else bearing witness to it with their lives. So whatever you think about the future, whatever you think this verse and chapter means about this verse and chapter and this verse and chapter, I think Jesus said it best. He says, be ready. Do the job that you were given to do. Follow me fully. Believe I am who I said I was. I say I am who I say I will be. And be the church I have called you to be. Don't just go, but be. Let it be your everything. Let it transform your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength so that you see this world a little bit differently and truly love your neighbor as yourself instead of, instead of doing what some of these poor examples of Christian nations do to one another. The end speaks to how we live today. What we think is going to happen, what we think is going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next year affects what we do in the here and now, and it's important. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you would like to know more about our church, please visit us at sheltonnaz.org. You can hear more sermons, you can tithe online, and you can see our current events. Thanks again for listening. We will see you next time.